Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. For this episode, we go to England in 2016. So, let's get our ends away with Dad's Army. Director, Oliver Parker. Script, Hamish McCall. Director of Photography, Christopher Ross. Editor, Guy Bensley. And music, Charlie Mole. Actors, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Michael Gambon, Bill Nye, Toby Jones, Tom Courtney, Mark Gattis, and Ian Lavender. The impulse to make a movie from a hit TV series is a good one. After all, the series Dad's Army was made into a movie in 1968, which featured all the original cast. After that initial impulse, however, the concept of shooting a contemporary remake starts to break down. The core cast are either too dead or too old for their parts after this amount of time. Bringing in new actors means the appeal of the film is not to people who loved the series. This brings in the necessity of either telling an origin story or jump right into the meat of a story and let the audience work out the character dynamics for themselves. I'll start with the good things about this particular adaptation. A top-notch cast of Brit thespians. That's thespians, darlings. Form an ensemble, kind of, and they're not particularly good at this kind of comedy. Money is spent on getting the period details right. This eye candy helps gloss over several problems in the film. The period is World War II England. The Home Guard is patrolling the shoreline on the lookout for invading Germans. The Home Guard is made of the old, unfirm, and unfit for military duty, and are considered a bit of a joke even among the locals. I know you're thinking with this review so far I seem to be damning with faint praise. The finale comes very close to excusing the rest of the film, even if it does involve a pointless explosion for US audiences. In that finale, the essence of the TV series is finally captured. The chief problem with this film is the script. Not the scriptwriter, I can't fault his work. It seems to be the brief he was given on what to write. The TV series Dad's Army ran for many years and had a large continuing cast. It was about the community of Warmington-on-Sea. The script tries to cram in as many of these characters as it can to a simple formula. One scene for each, plus one scene where they use their catchphrase. This would be a struggle for any writer, so why hand on this poisoned chalice? And why didn't he tell them that they won't like the cold steel of a pen up them? Reason? The movie is confused about who the audience is supposed to be. The nostalgia audience haven't seen a new episode of Dad's Army for about 50 years. The TV show is meaningless to a modern audience. The movie assumes the audience already knows all the characters and their relationships to each other. This is a bold and brave move. It's also the wrong one. Some judicious cutting of minor characters would have allowed room for the remaining characters to breathe, making the 
film An Origin Tale, the first meeting of the Warmington-on-Sea Home Guard, would also help explain why the Home Guard, historically, was seen as a necessity and a joke. To modernize, the Home Guard comes without any context. They are funny men pretending to be soldiers. Stripped of their historical necessity, they become fantasy figures, which, in this type of situational comedy, kills the comedy. It is the laughter of recognition of ourselves in the characters that made the series the hit it was. In the film, I prefer the scene where Godfrey pees against a tree over the bedroom farce scene when Catherine Zeta-Jones's many admirers turn up at the same time. The first finds the spirit of the series. The second is strange, even within the context of this film, because the characters haven't been developed enough to serve the situation. It comes across as a busy scene in which nothing happens. Critical reception has been mixed at best, with Peter Bradshaw probably nailing the consensus opinion when he wrote, It's hard to escape the sinking feeling that this is a waste of talent, that this is a good-natured, well-meaning, but pointless kind of Brit comedy ancestor worship, paying elaborate homage to a TV show that got it right the first time. Actor Tom Courtney was born on February 25th, 1937, in Hull, England. Tom had a hull of a childhood and then studied acting at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. After graduating, he became associated with the British New Wave movement in cinema. He began his career on stage in 1960 at the Old Vic Theatre and then moved to the Cambridge Theatre in 1961 to take over a role from Albert Finney. Tom recalled... We both had the same problem, overcoming the flat, harsh speech of the North. Tom made his film debut in 1962, but it was his second film of 1962, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, followed by Billy Liar, 1963, that turned him into a star and a darling of the British cinema scene, or at least those repulsed by the British industry's fuddy-duddy cosy relationship with US film producers. Hit followed hit, but by the late 60s, Tom was relaxing into stage work. Commenting somewhat later, I slightly overdid the anti-film thing. His triumphant return was in 1983's The Dresser, in which he played the titular character in a two-hander playing across from Albert Finney as the actor being dressed. For Tom, he was but reprising a role he had created on stage. More movie roles followed, some of which were not wisely chosen. But Tom has proven to be very good in even a bad movie. Actor Toby Jones was born on September 7, 1966, in Hammersmith, England. Toby studied at the University of Manchester and L'École Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq. He debuted in 1982's Orlando and has been busy on stage and screen ever since, including his work in the Harry Potter series, 2002 to 2010. Actor Michael Gambon was born on October 19th, 1940, in Dublin. His father decided to emigrate to London for the better work opportunities due to the post-war reconstruction there. In the move, his father also made sure that the six-year-old Michael was made a British citizen. 
By the time he was 21, Michael had become a qualified engineering technician. In 1962, he wrote a letter to Michael McLemore of Dublin's Gate Theatre describing his imaginary theatrical experience. He was hired. The next year, he auditioned for the National Theatre Company London, which was then under the directorship of Laurence Olivier. An extensive theatrical career followed. This still left a little time for film work. Michael made his film debut in 1965 and didn't dip his toe into the stream again until 1973. In a moment of honesty, he said, I am a theatre actor, but the last 10 years I've taken parts in movies because it keeps me in money. I say this because Michael is notorious for hating to do interviews and has claimed that he made things up in them just to spice things up. In later years, he found fame playing Dumbledore in the Harry Potter series. He recalled of this experience, A child did approach me in a restaurant in Cornwall, but he thought I was Gandalf. History was a shining beacon of shite. On... June the 23rd, the UK held a referendum on whether or not to split from the European Union. It is notable for the amount of disinformation coming from the side in favour of a split. It is also remarkable for the motivated reasoning that accepted the self-evident lies. September the 28th. Global CO2 levels exceeded 400 parts per million. This is higher than anything else previously recorded in human history. For a change of pace, here's a tale about a squatter. The Lady in the Van. Director, Nicholas Heinter. Script, Alan Bennett. Director of Photography, Andrew Dunn. Editor, Tariq Anwar. Music, George Fenton. Actors, Maggie Smith, Jim Broadbent and Alex Jennings. I've been struggling for a week to find my critical response to this film and I am no nearer to really wrapping my mind around it. The film is the adaptation of a play adapted from a memoir adapted from life. All these layers are evident in the script. The work comes from the mind of playwright Alan Bennett, a North Countryman finding success in London. There is a fish-out-of-water quality to the narrative caused by a sense of displacement in the character of Alan. To further complicate matters, he is gay. He is not ostracized within his community for this, however, he, it does cause some excruciating embarrassment at times. The young men who visit his flat late at night must be communists. There's no other explanation. How quickly people jump to conclusions that fit their own personal narrative expectations. As a quick aside, historically, when the lady in the van moves into the street, homosexuality had been legal in England for about a decade. The film covers the mid-1970s into the 80s. The work then uses a visual metaphor to help explain several narrative layers. Alan bifurcates himself. There is the man who turns the raw materials of life into art. The writer, often seen sitting down at a typewriter. 
and the man who collects this material. These are played by the same actor, frequently occupying the same space. This leads into the first major theme of the film, nostalgia. If you think through these two aspects of Mr. Bennett, then you will observe they actually exist in different time periods. The writer is involved in synthesis, taking a number of observed incidents and distilling them down to a representative example, which may never have happened. A good example would be the human feces on the shoe. Note the language the writer uses to describe the incident, which infers multiple examples, compared to the material collector's attitude to a single incident. The pattern of nostalgia, of the past imposing patterns on the present, comes through strongly in the set designs. There is no mention of historical or political incidents to link the story to any particular period in time. We are being asked to distill the experience of this film so as to intuit its universals, the things that apply to our common humanity. Meanwhile, the writer tries to find the generic in the specific. Like many English writers, Alan Bennett does this through his examination of the class structure. That is, for instance, the scene where Alan's mother is embarrassed to meet a homeless woman because she comes from a higher class. Class is not always a good thing. I am reminded of a recent interview with New Zealand playwright Roger Hall. He was born in England. He said words to the effect that he didn't know how damaging class was to the psyche until he came to New Zealand and was freed from it. The class structure is perfectly expressed by the middle-class community in which the film is set. When a homeless woman moves into their street, their middle-class values make them want to give a NIMBY response. This conflicts with what they see as their Christian duty, and an attitude that tells them there is no value in being of a higher class if you can't condescend to the lower classes. Alan, who comes from the poverty-stricken north of his imagination, will have none of it. He is exasperated by his finer feelings, which he excuses as cowardice an unwillingness to create conflict. It's taken me a long time to get around to the lady in the van. This is because she's a MacGuffin. She motivates the action and is incidental to it. Usually a MacGuffin is something everyone wants. She is something everybody wants to get rid of. Her life is not narratively important. It is her impact on other people's lives that is the focus of the story. She serves to illustrate that theory of Mark Twain. We don't do good because it benefits other people. We do good to make ourselves feel better. She is cantankerous, ungrateful, a little unhinged, and haunted by her past, which feeds into the nostalgia theme. Although the lady is haunted by her past, she haunts Alan Bennett. In one aspect, she represents the Irish tale of the beggar at the gate. She is the poor who find their voice in the public endurance of their sufferings to the point that it shames others into action. This, however, would cast Alan as a king when, in the film, he plays a clown. The last theme I will mention is care for the elderly. As Alan's mother declines into senility, the lady in the van powers on like the ever-ready bunny. She thrives on neglect. 
It means she doesn't have to think about the death she accepts responsibility for, and which she believes the police want to hold her to account for, nor does she have to think about the pain of denying music to herself. This is one thing I really struggled with. Does Margaret really think God is such a prick that it finds her self-inflicted suffering a better gift than that of a life well-lived? I was thinking she really needed to reread that parable of the servants and the talents and interpret it outside the theory of banking economics. However, there is also an implicit criticism of the convent for imposing this on someone who was clearly not mentally well at this point of her life. Her faith, like that of Vincent van Gogh, had a huge potential to be destructive. Playwright Alan Bennett was born on May the 9th, 1934, in Armley, England, a good Yorkshire lad. I was very fond of my parents, he said, and got on with them. But that, of course, is a mixed blessing. Philip Larkin says they fuck you up, your mum and dad. And if your parents do fuck you up and you're going to write, that's fine because you've got something to write about. But if they don't fuck you up, then you've got nothing to write about. So then they fucked you up good and proper. Alan learned Russian during his national service years and then applied for a scholarship from Oxford University. He obtained a degree in history. He remained at the university to be a junior lecturer in medieval history whilst, all the time, performing in the Oxford Review. By 1960, he had decided that he was just not suited for the life of an academic. Alan was once watching the film Wuthering Heights, 1939, with a friend. The friend observed, You're rather like Heathcliff. Awkward, northern, and a cunt. In the year of 1960, Alan partnered with Dudley Moore, Jonathan Miller, and Peter Cook to form the satirical review Beyond the Fringe, which successfully toured London and New York City. His first stage play was produced in 1968. Alan was always backwards and coming forward. He had been writing for TV since 1966. TV and theatre have proved to be his comfort zone. He has been hugely successful in both these media. Asked about the impulse to write The Lady in the Van, he replied, The story told by this film took place 40 and more years ago, and Miss Shepherd is long since dead. She was difficult and eccentric, but above all, she was poor. And these days, particularly the poor don't get much of a look in. Poverty is a moral failing today, as it was under the Tudors. If the film has a point, it's about fairness and tolerance, and however begrudgingly helping the less fortunate, who are not well thought of these days, and now likely to be even less so. It began as an essay published in the London Review of Books in 1989. In 1990, he published the essay in book form. Then it was adapted in 1999 into a stage play that was directed by Nicholas Heinter. This was broadcast as a radio play on the BBC in 2009, and thus, finally, we arrive at the film form in 2016. Director Nicholas Heinter was born on May the 7th, 1956, in Didsbury, England. Nicholas went to Cambridge University, where he did some acting and directing. He later commented, I think I was savvy enough when I went to Cambridge to discover I was a poor actor. After uni, his first job was as an assistant at the English National Opera. 
1985, he was appointed Associate Director of the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. Nicholas's life radically changed in 1989 when he was hired to direct the musical Miss Saigon. He directed both the London and New York versions. Now financially secure, he could pick and choose the work he wanted to do. What he wanted to do was to go to the National Theatre where he directed the Alan Bennett play The Madness of King George III. In 1994, Alan insisted that Nicholas direct the film version, whose title dropped the three so US audiences wouldn't be confused into thinking the movie was a sequel. Deaths were like a cold shower of doom on. January the 10th, David Bowie, the British musician born 1947. January the 14th, Alan Rickman, the British actor born 1926. January the 30th, Frank Finlay, the British actor born 1926. February the 22nd, Douglas Slocum, the British DOP, born 1913. April the 20th, Guy Hamilton, the British director, born 1922. June the 6th, Paul Schaefer, the British playwright, born 1922. August the 13th, Kenny Baker, the British actor, born 1934. And finally, December the 24th, Richard Adams, the British author, born 1920. Next episode is for Buzzsprout and Patreon supporters only. It's the fifth in the best science fiction films of all times, and the first in the series that features a film you may have heard of. It's 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey. If you're not a pod person, then you'll just have to wait until I turn the shuttle around and land down in Algeria in 1898 to scare the natives. Don't forget to make me rich and potentially famous. Don't forget that by buying up all the Movie Chronicles series of ebooks that you can find at an e-store near you. Until next time, ciao.